You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girl down. You already know. If you ever get in a situation where you think you have to make a Faustian bargain like that, you have to make these fake changes in yourself in order to have success. It's going to dig deep into your soul and it's not going to be pretty. I'm never going to get up on the stiletto heels in the corset with the huge hair, with the fake nails, with the fake eyelashes and shove all my feelings. I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tart. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today, we have an absolute legend joining us. Our guest today has one of the greatest voices in rock music history. Ann Wilson is lead singer and songwriter of the band Heart, which she has fronted for over 40 years with her sister Nancy, earning them a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The first hard rock band fronted by women Women, Hart has sold over 35 million albums, and their hits, including Barracuda, Crazy on You, and Magic Man, are undisputed classics. As a solo artist, Anne released the 2007 album Hope and Glory and the 2018 album Immortal, along with multiple singles. And this past May, she released a surprising and beautiful EP from the archives of the band she was in before Hart. The Daybreaks was a band Anne fronted in the late 60s, and now four tracks of her Flower Child Pop from 1969 are available on all streaming platforms for the first time. Throughout the pandemic, Wilson has been writing and recording, and she's about to start touring again. I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Anne Wilson. Hooray, you're here. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. So good and so excited to see you here with us today. I'd like to start at the beginning, if I can. I know that you were born into a military family and you lived all over the world by the time you graduated from high school in Washington State. And I've seen in a few interviews that you describe yourself as a shy kid with a stutter, but somehow you managed to find your way to fronting rock bands while you were still a teenager, first in the Daybreaks and then, of course, in Heart. What can you tell me about finding your voice for the first time and coming out of your shell through music? Well, I'd say that um, the first time I came out of my shell was in speech class in high school. You know, you have to take a quarter of speech where you get up in front of people and make a speech, you know. And I left it till the very final quarter of senior year because I was so scared. But then in that speech class, there was a thing that happened where I don't know what it was. The stutter just lifted off when I got in front of people. And um, so that was a clue to me that, hey, I should just get up on a stage, you know, like I'm free. So I just started being in bands and talking between songs. And it just sort of was a way that um, I was able to transcend the stutter and all the shyness and the uh, lack of self-confidence. And then as the years went on, I just got to feel the most comfortable in that environment, you know, mm-hmm. I think I do better in front of 10,000 people than I do in front of one person <laughs> is what I'm saying. 
<laughs> I hear that. Um, one thing that struck me as really remarkable about your early career is that you were already in heart when you decided to recruit your younger sister, Nancy, for the band. I just think that that was very generous of you, especially considering that you were both teenage girls and, um, you know, being a teenage girl can be so competitive sometimes. Was it ever difficult sharing the spotlight uh, since you were there in the band first? No, it was never difficult sharing the spotlight with her because we we learned to play guitars together and we shared a bedroom in our parents' house and we were kids together and uh, we would play dolls, then play horses, and that kind of play gave way to guitar play and then stage, you know. So, no, I never felt uh, competitive with her there, but I, you know, back when I was younger, like in my 20s and stuff, it was difficult to uh, stand next to someone so beautiful and not feel second base, you know. Uh, that was the only competitiveness I ever felt. And it was so superficial, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mentioned in the intro that you just released a very fun and surprising EP from your time in the Daybreaks in the late 60s. It reveals a much softer sound than your fans are usually used to from you. What has it been like listening to those tracks 50 years later? I imagine it's just like a total trip to hear them again. Well, it's too Right, yeah, it's very surreal. I think those Daybreaks tracks are, um, they were country songs because I was in a band, well, Daybreaks was a, a bar band, a rock band, and our drummer's father had these friends who were country western songwriters and they just needed some band, any band, to lay down a couple of their, three of their tracks in the studio. So we volunteered with studio, uh, in exchange for studio time and uh, so country music was never my main thing. So it's surreal listening to my my 18-year-old self singing country music. It's like, what do I'm you just want to reach out and hug her? I just think it, it must be so yeah. wild. Right, yeah. I mean, she's so, she's just fresh out of her mother's house, you know. And my, uh, my mother used to always play Judy Garland and Edie Gourmet and Ray Charles and that kind of stuff. So uh, I had absorbed, by osmosis, I'd absorbed that kind of drama in singing. But I, she never listened to country music, except maybe Patsy Cline. So, um, you know, I, I can hear that in my performance at age 18. It's just all that influence. What how, kind of feedback have you gotten so far? I know you just released the EP very recently. Yeah, um, I had some really funny feedback the other day. I was sitting uh, in a hair salon, actually, and this young woman who was doing my hair goes, yeah, me and my friends heard your new CD, and we really liked it. It was so cool, and I didn't know what she meant. She <laughs> didn't know that it was, like, 50 years old. You know, she thought it was something new that I'd just released that I was going a whole new direction, you know? <laughs> well, there is yeah, I'm trying to sound 18, <laughs> you know? Try I just tried to sound like an 18-year-old singing country songs again. How about well, that? It, it, I think so. that it 
could easily go that way because you do, there is a timeless quality to your voice. Like I, I think that you could sound like that theoretically because you can still hear like the Ann Wilson that we all know and love in there somewhere. I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. 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 It's uh, the feedback has been amazing. I, I think people just, they need a uh, backstory and they love backstory. So that fills that need. Well, I'm so glad that you brought up backstory. That just leads perfectly into my next question, which is one of your most beloved heart songs, of course, is Barracuda. And as much as I love it, I didn't actually learn the backstory about what inspired you to write that song until recently. I know it is like a classic rock legend for the ages, but I didn't know this backstory until recently. Can you please tell our listeners the backstory on Barracuda? Yeah, um, Nancy and I came from a family uh, of pretty open-minded people, and our mother was part of the Gloria Steinem generation of feminists. And so we were raised just to believe that, you know, women were equal and we could do whatever we wanted. Why not? And so we never gave it a second thought. Then we got into the beginnings of of success with art and uh we were all confident and we were doing our art we were all we were so um pure-hearted about it and authentic and real and serious about our art and so after a concert one night we were in the dressing room and uh there were all kinds of industry types in the dressing room schmoozing with us, you know. And this guy comes up to me, a real sleazebag in one of those 70s kind of satin baseball jacket things they used to wear back then. And uh, he says to me, so, so Annie, how's your lover? Uh, and I go, oh, fine, you know. At that time, I was with Michael Fisher, Michael's right over there. We're doing fine. And he goes, no, 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 no. Your real lover, your sister, you know, and it dawned on me that instead of our art being listened to, um, it was the old two chicks together fantasy. And this guy was sleazily trying to talk with me about it, you know, and get his rocks off by me going, ah, yeah, yeah, we're having this, you know, incestuous lesbian relationship, Nancy and I. (laughs) So therefore, by heart records, you know, it was just such a sleazy, sinister moment that it really, really made me angry. And I went back to the hotel and I wrote the words to Barracuda in prose form. And uh, we put it to this heavy music it's very aggressive it was a song written in rage and in fact you know even though even way back then I had no homophobia I didn't have a homophobic bone in my body it wasn't about that it was about the fact that because we were women the only thing we were good for 
was some kind of sexual thing. And the art was just whatever, you know. So <laughs> that was a real revelation to me. Yeah. It was one of those, uh, those negative aha moments. It also really impressed me that at that same time, you know, that gentleman had that misconception about you and your sister because your first record label, Mushroom Records, was very sort of cheekily promoting you guys that way as being like, are they sisters? Are they lovers or both? Like they weren't saying it that way, but they were certainly with the visuals that they were choosing. They had like a picture of you guys both with bare shoulders and it said it was only our first time under it as an ad and they never asked you about it. And as a response, you and your sister, who are, I believe, either both still teenagers or in your early 20s, you were like, fuck you, Mushroom Records. We are leaving you. Yeah. Yeah. That was the straw that broke the camel's back was that whole, we had other issues with them uh, business-wise, but uh, mainly it was that they didn't get us. Mm-hmm. They didn't get that they were looking at something new at that time. And uh, they were looking at something real and authentic and classy. Um, and, you know, it goes back to the way our mother raised us. She was very classy and uh we felt that we understood that that so uh that was that moment uh, where we went no we got to go find somebody who's a little bit more (laughs) more intelligent about what they see in us i am now going to reveal a controversial opinion that i already know and that you will not agree with me on i actually really love your song all i want to do is make love to you let me just say up front, you did not write that song. That song was first recorded in 1979 by Dobie Gray. And I know that you've said that you don't like it because it's got a sort of creepy narrative about a woman who picks up a hitchhiker in the rain and just sort of bangs him and leaves him. hearing so for me after hearing so many thousands of pop songs that have been written for women in which they are basically begging men to stay and to never leave them and to love them forever hearing you sing this incredibly weird and horny song in 1990 was somehow badass and liberating for me maybe it's because i was a very weird and horny 15 year old when that song came out on the radio i was years away from making love to anybody but it was just kind yeah. of a relief to hear you sing out that whole soap operatic saga. I wonder right. what are your thoughts on that song now? Do you still hate it? Do you like it maybe a little? Will you ever perform it again? I don't hate it. I just, <laughs> I'm just a singer who, who like I do my best work when I can really uh, get into it. You know, when I, when I love the narrative, when I love the, poetry um that didn't have it for me it was just a little bit too uh 
I don't know. I don't mind horny at all because I'm a real horny person myself. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it just seems so kind of yucky somehow. I think it it was the not the non the inequality of the situation. I think I'd witness I've witnessed so many guys, you know, banging women and leaving them on the side of the road that I felt weird about being the one who was doing it, you know. Right. Um, the song has a really great sing-along chorus and uh, musically it's a great pop song. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. I guess I'm just too serious-minded. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I also give that song the side eye. Sorry to be a spoiler who for anyone who isn't lucky enough to have heard the song, but the the twist ending is that she actually banged this random hitchhiker because she wanted to get pregnant and her husband couldn't do the job. And so I, right. that for me, I totally give that the side eye because like, why couldn't she just have wanted to have sex with like a hot guy? Like, why was it so procreative when for uh, men, that's yes. never the reason. That's, that's because the song was written by a male. Mm-hmm. That's a male fantasy. And, uh, <laughs> I guess that, that's another reason for my discomfort with it. The song right. was really written for for other for guys to sing, and we just got the song like the chorus and flipped around the gender, right? Uh-huh. So so I could because uh, uh, I hate uh, flipping genders in my singing. I just right. think it sounds forced and weird, <laughs> and it just gives me some kind of nausea. I think it's the the inequality, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that makes sense. Do you ever still perform it, or is it on the X list? I did it uh, for a while. I did it in my solo career. I tried to do it, and every time I would be doing it, uh, about two years ago in my solo show, and every time I'd do it, I'd get this kind of nauseous feeling. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I shouldn't force myself to do anything. Definitely not. To do a song, you know? Yeah. It's got to be stuff I really dig. Yeah, I just mentioned my my weird fifteen year old self um, because that's how old I was when I really locked into your music. It was nineteen eighty five. It was the release of your album Heart. There were so many amazing hit singles that came out of just that one album. What about love? Yeah. Never these dreams. Nothing at all. If looks could kill, and you and Nancy were making these incredible videos with dramatic metal goddess outfits and very dramatic makeup and huge hair. Yeah. I just thought you were both the coolest, but (laughs) for me, I really focused in on you because I was around little kid in elementary school when I first saw you on Mm -hmm. TV and you were one of the very first plus sized gorgeous, powerful, glamorous women I had ever seen almost anywhere in pop culture and especially in the context of rock and roll. Like on MTV, it was just you. And you gave me hope. You gave me something to aspire to that was very glamorous. So when I learned later on as an adult that during that time, you were suffering from stage fright and panic attacks because music industry fucking douchebags were hurling abuse at you because of your size. Right, yeah. I can't yeah. say that I was surprised, but I was definitely heartbroken by that. What, what can you tell me about making it through that fuckery and continuing to succeed despite all that garbage that was dumped on you and you were being such an inspiration to so many people? Well, I think that I came through that uh, 
with a little PTSD for sure. Um, you know, as someone who had the stutter and all that earlier on, that was a setback for me. Uh, because all of a sudden I was, they were saying just horrific things about me, you know, and um, as much as you try to let that stuff roll off your back and not take it seriously, it just became all pervasive. Like uh, it, it was everywhere. And um, it, it was really hard to live behind that and to go out on stage and go like, I, I feel great, you know, but I did. And um, I think that's where, I first learned that if I drank, you know, mm. after the show, I could go have a few drinks and it would take the edge off and I could forget about it for 24 hours and then go back up the next night. And it became an act, you know, the time on stage became an act rather than a real me wanting to be there. And that's against my very basic principles of being a performer. Um, so when those three tours were done, I was really glad and took a little bit of time off in the 90s. And, uh, and then I just was able to shake that off and emerge with a new confidence, you know. How did you find your confidence yeah. again? Was it just taking the time for self-care for yourself? Is there like any strategies that you employed that I can learn from? Uh, strategy... I don't think so, but but I just came to a point in myself where I said, you know, I'm never going to do that again. I'm I'm never going to get up on the stiletto heels in the corset with the huge hair, with the fake nails, with the fake eyelashes all at once and pretend to be real, you know, and shove all my feelings. I'm just not going to do that. So I think I bounced to the other extreme. <laughs> I went home to Seattle, you know, put on the combat boots and the big baggy clothes and had kids and and did the love mongers which was like a real undone acoustic group kind of like our version of the Wilburys, you know and um it wore off and i felt really good again you know but it took me just going through that fire to be tempered let this be a lesson from, from the old wise old owl. If you ever get in a situation where you think you have to make a Faustian bargain like that, where uh, you have to make these fake changes in yourself in order to have success, it's, it's going to dig deep into your soul and it's not going to be pretty eventually. So don't do it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> You know, I read some, I'm glad that you talked about going back to Seattle and putting on the combat boots and, and things of that nature, because I read some really interesting things, drawing some very direct lines between you and your sister, between heart and the grunge explosion out of Seattle that came in the years after heart made it big. You guys were like the biggest band in Seattle before grunge. And you started your own studio there and you um, helped launch the careers of a lot of grunge icons. You were involved 
in, it was the singles soundtrack, right? Where like a lot of that mix and mingling happened. How do you feel about those connections that are being made between you and your sister, your studio and the birth of grunge music? I think that it was like a uh, rebirth for me and for my sister both. At that time, she was married to Cameron Crowe. And so uh, we separated for a while, Nancy and I, and she went and did scores for a few of his movies. And I did my own thing. And so we completely aired it out for a while. We, had, we both felt pretty PTSD from the 80s. That's where we had the biggest co- commercial success and made a bunch of money. But we came out of it kind of beat up, both of us. Um, so the time in Seattle was like a really nice way to wash and and start over. And we were happy with it. I mean, that was a moment where we both could have just thrown in the towel. Okay, did that, been there, made the money, had number ones, did MTV videos, you know, sold our souls. Okay, we're done. <laughs> but but we didn't, you know. So we go on. Yeah, I'm so glad that you did. I was really excited to read that a heart biopic is being written to be directed by Carrie Brownstein from Slater Kinney is in the works. <laughs> She's been interviewing you and Nancy to get the real deal story. What can you tell me about this project? I'm so super excited for it. Yeah. Um, Carrie has written the script. It's, it's been, ex- it's been accepted by Amazon. She's been accepted as the director. They're in casting now. And, um, they really have asked me not to talk about it too much because they, you know, the, making a mo- making a major motion picture is, is like such a long process and they don't want to have people start going, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? You know, <laughs> but, uh, but it's definitely in the works and I've read the, the script and uh, it's amazing. Carrie's the perfect person to have done it because, you know, she gets rock. She is rock herself. Mm-hmm. And she's a great writer, as you know, and um, it's going to be good. It's not going to be the same old tabloidy uh, thing that you always see in rock movies where, hey, it starts out everyone's beautiful and great and they have big success. And then there's a fall from grace and then there's redemption at the end. It's not going to be that same old thing. It's going to really be a different story. It's going to be what it was like for us in the industry as women. Do you have any input on who gets to play you? I don't yet, no. And I I think they'll probably tell me, but, you know, I don't consider myself to be a, a casting know-it-all. <laughs> uh-huh. So I think um, Linda Obst is producing it, and she and Carrie and the movie guys, they'll find the right person. Are you, and of course I'm going to, I'm just wondering, are you allowed to verbally fantasize, tell us if you could choose who anybody in the world to play you from any era in history ever to play you? Can you tell us who you would want? I think I would choose an unknown. Cool. I choose, I choose an up and coming unknown and there's, 
a couple of names have been bandied about. They're British girls and um, that can sing and that are like spitfires, you know, and I, I like that. I think, you know, give somebody a chance who, who can really inhabit the role and not go up there and be Elizabeth Taylor or, you know, whoever. Right. They, yeah. They'll really get inside it. Although I could see Elizabeth Taylor playing you, I have to say, of a certain... <laughs> when you said it. Yeah, when you said that, I could see a young Elizabeth Taylor, like from like, yeah, from like National Velvet or something playing you. I could see it. <laughs> yeah, she, def- she definitely had a simmer. She did. <laughs> Ka- Callie and I play this game all the time because at Bust Magazine, whenever anybody leaves, like we have a lot of interns and whenever they leave, we ask them if anybody ever decides to make a movie of Bust Magazine. And they really should, I think, honestly. <laughs> if anybody makes a, a movie of Bust Magazine, we ask everybody, who would you want to play you in the movie of Bust? So Callie and I play this game all the time. Callie, who, who do you want to play you these days? Oh, I don't know these days. Hmm. Cher. Cher would be great as Callie. I think that would be amazing. I think Cher would be hilarious as me. Yeah, I always want Ricky yeah. to play me. I've just always thought Ricky Lake would play <laughs> me. Um, I wanted to ask you very briefly about an incident that happened in 2016 that really shook up every heart fan around the world. Your husband was arrested for assaulting Nancy's 16 year old twin sons while you and Nancy were performing Mm -hmm. together on stage in Washington. And though somehow you two were able to finish the tour, the band went on an extended hiatus after that. And things between your two families were very strained until you came back together to tour again in 2019. I would just really love to know just a a bit about how you and Nancy were able to heal from that experience and what you did to repair your relationship. Right. Well, um, it took, it took a lot of, uh, strength on both our parts on my part. I think particularly because um, no one really cared to hear our side of things. The attention was just put on, oh, these poor little babies got hit, you know. Uh, But I thought that dignity-wise and maturity-wise, it was best just to let things roll and not become defensive for Dean and I. Time did it, just the washing of time. I think we were able to finally just like let it go and just (laughs) things happen inside of families. And uh, it definitely was not the end of the world. I mean, it was uh, something so minor that was blown up into something so huge that uh, we just had to remember, well, you're in the public eye and this is just yeah. grist for the mill. You know, I mean, they, this is perfect tabloid stuff. And yeah, that's yeah. what it became. Um, we could have worked it out that night with a family meeting, but there were other people involved and it got to be so chaotic that we never did that night get a chance to talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that could have averted the whole mess. Um, as of now, you know, Nancy and Dean have hugged each other. They've, they're, we're way past that now. That's great. And, and, 
And Nancy and I, uh, when we get on stage, it's like it always was. So, but you know, the only uh, distance between us now is geographic is what I'm saying. That is so good to hear. I find that so inspiring. You know, what your family went through is so relatable for so many of us. I have a sibling who I've been estranged from for a long time. I know Callie's had ups and downs with her family. It's just, it's really amazing to see, like you said, like you had a tumultuous time in your family that so many of us could relate to, but you had to go through it with the entire world watching. And I just find it really inspiring that you were able to go through it. Yeah, Well, you know, if I can pull focus for a minute, it's just like all the things that happen, whether it be uh, me getting talked about in the 80s or something happening in 2016 with our families, it's uh, we get the pleasure because we decided to be in the public eye. We we get the pleasure of doing it in front of everybody, you know, (laughs) Yeah, the for better or worse, that's that's the path that you guys have chosen right. by being rock stars, I guess. Right. Um I know that you mentioned your mom being a Gloria Steinem style feminist. I would like to know if today, Ann Wilson, are you a feminist? Constantly, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm the kind of feminist that just says, what? Why can't we? You know, like, what's what's the holdup? I don't see the, uh, there being any reason that uh, if you really want to do something, you can't just go ahead and do it. Um, now, I know that there are forces out in culture that get in your way still, but things have really changed a lot. Look at Take just the body uh, image question. Things have opened up a lot on that front. Yeah. And that was done, that was done just by people having the guts to say, look at me, this is who I am, this is what I look like. You know, get used to it. <laughs> yeah, deal with and, it. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess that's the kind of feminist I am, is just... If you want something, don't sit around whining that somebody won't let you do it. How has your feminism impacted your career, would you say, or vice versa? How, how has your feminism been reflected in, in the professional choices you've made? Well, I think it's, it's been a plus all along. Um, I think I've never really hidden myself behind the banner of being a girl I've just always felt like a person and uh, when you take away those those imprisoning gender roles then it's it's amazing how open the landscape looks Um, and I know it's harder for young women because they're in the in the mating age and you know (laughs) They want to look good and they want to, you know, walk that plank. <laughs> and that's good. That, that's good for them. Um, but you grow past that. And that's when the fun really starts, I think. I would like to know what are your hopes and your dreams and your plans and your goals for the rest of 2021? What is on your vision board? 
my vision board is um, <laughs> I'm going to play a bunch of shows uh, in the Northeast in August and September up in New York and um, a few other places in the Northeast. And I'm playing a bunch of shows down here starting 10 days from now. And so there's that. And then it's just going to be writing, uh, recording, being with my husband and my two wonderful dogs who are sleeping in the background. <laughs> they're not and, sleeping. And, um, they're playing and being very cute. <laughs> oh, they're playing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they're cute. What kind of dogs are they? They're Westies. Oh, and they're, they're just puppies. They're, I think, six months old now, but they're super high energy. <laughs> so cute. Endemic puppies. Yeah. Uh, how does it feel to be going back out to perform live again? It's been such a long time. To be honest, I'm kind of nervous about it. I'm always nervous between tours. When a tour is looming, I just kind of start going, oh, where's it going to come from, you know? Uh, but, but it always seems to be there when I get out there. Um, uh-huh. I'm, looking f- I'm looking forward to it a lot because uh, I've been touring and playing shows for so long in my life for most of my life and when I don't do it for a year and a half I start to wonder who I am (laughs) yeah yeah well this is my last question and it is the last question that we ask all of our guests and that question is what you watching it's a broad pop cultural question we want to know about books and movies and television and music and music videos anything that you are consuming pop culturally we want to know what it is because it is probably very very cool and wilson what you watching well, right now, I got to tell you, I'm binging on Call the Midwife. Because um, I m- missed that when it came out. And uh, so I think I'm on season seven right now. Uh-huh. Been watching it for days. <laughs> and uh, I just love it because it's this this beautiful human interest thing. It's it's beautifully shot. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Um, He's calling but, you the know, midwife. We're constantly watching stuff. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, that show handles a lot of things, a lot of women's issues, which I really like. Um, music. I'm always listening to uh, God. Just listened to six a.m. a while ago. And I love world music. Uh, I love Lucinda Williams. Um, I love Robert Plant, just his solo stuff with the space shifters. And my tastes are really wide when it comes to that. Uh, Miles Davis. Um, I'm, I'm catching up on some stuff like Miles Davis. I like Marconi Union, The Art of Noise. Oh, yeah. Can Dance. I loved Dead Can Dance in college. I listened to them a lot in college. Yeah, yeah. And books. I'm reading Anais Nin. Um, That's what I'm reading right now. I'm wondering, 
Callie turned me on to this amazing website. Um, and I was thinking about it because you said you really liked world music. Have you ever listened to a website called Radio Garden? No, I should check that out. Callie awesome. just told me about it. It's this amazing website where you just type in like it's radio.garden.com, I think. And mm-hmm. it just pulls up this huge map of the world and mm-hmm. every and it's covered in these thousands and thousands of tiny green dots and every green dot is a radio station somewhere in the world that is broadcasting online and you can like i just like hovered my mouse over the map and chose this radio station in morocco and i'm listening to local moroccan radio and it's like blowing my mind and then i like <laughs> went over to like siberia and there's this one green dot in like 700 miles there's just this one green dot and they're playing like really aggressive techno and it's just kind of especially um you know during lockdown when I was just like in this tiny east village apartment I was really loving traveling the world through radio garden because Callie turned me on to it that's great I will definitely check it out and thank you so much for being on our show. We are such huge fans. It is such a tremendous honor to have had this opportunity to speak with you. You are such a gift and such a national treasure. And I don't even want to imagine what the rock landscape would be without you. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you're welcome. It, it was really fun talking with you. We're going to take the briefest of breaks. And when I come back, I'm going to ask Callie. And then Callie's going to ask me, what you watching? What you watching? And we're back. Hello. Callie, we spoke to a true rock and roll legend. That we did, dude. You And I know how much you love them. As like one of your faves bands. I love Ann Wilson. Yeah. All right. So now, now I'm going to shift focus onto you, another superstar in my midst, <laughs> because I've got to know and I want to know and I need to know. Callie Watts, what you watching? What have I been watching? You want to know, huh? Well, I watched this this uh, comedy musical comedy special on Netflix that Debbie, editor chief of Buzz Magazine, has been obsessed obsessed with it's called Bo Burnham inside and it is like you know I love funny musical shows like Tenacious D and um oh who were the flight of the concords I love shit like that um so Mm -hmm. obviously this is in my wheelhouse and basically this one guy he he used to be a stand-up and he hasn't done stand-up in like five years because he was having panic attacks. And so he spent some time working on himself. And during the pandemic, you know, he was stuck in his house. So the whole time for like, I, maybe it's over a year, he says how long it was in, in the thing. He works on this comedy special with just him doing all of the things. Nobody else is involved and it's in one room. And it's hilarious. It's like a bunch of different songs and some little funny segues. Um but it's very introspective. Some of them and some of them were just plain silly. Um, but there's one song that's just about how you can find everything on the internet. And he just lists all the fucking most ridiculous things on the internet. And then there's one about FaceTiming with his mom. 
and how he's just going to stay at home. We're not talking to his bros and just FaceTime with his mom. And then there's one about white women's Instagrams that's so hilariously on point. And he's just like in these different costumes while he does it. And one about how he's feels like he's problematic because one year he dressed like Aladdin, not in brown face, but he did it. <laughs> and it's just, they're good. Have you seen it yet? No, I haven't seen it yet. You should definitely watch it. It gets, I think, a little long, but I would I would watch it again, and I would definitely tell other people to watch it. I like musical things, so I think I would like it. Yeah, I think you would. I think you would find it hilarious. And then um, another thing I'm watching is the show Betty. It's on HBO. This is season two, and I think I may have talked about this before when season one was out. But it's based on that film Skate Kitchen. It was like a doc on this oh, all right. girl skate crew. Yeah, the skate girls. Yeah. It's the, uh, the real girls from the dock, and well, most of them, and they're real skaters themselves, and they're just playing, like, versions of themselves. And there's one character, is this girl, Kirk. She's a lesbian, and she's, like, got game, right? And she fucks her leg up um, and has, is on, like, one of those little scooter things to, like, scuttle around while your leg heals. And mm-hmm. so she can't skate. And so in this downtime, she starts like advising all the boys on how to like approach women. And the, the she, she'll be just like eye a girl up and she'll be like, this person, you're going to want to ask her about this sort of stuff, you know? And she's just giving them all this logical advice. And then, um, then in another episode, she's like explaining sex to them. And she's just like, you got to turn her fingers a little bit like this. And she was like, and you know, you have a G spot, right? It's in your butthole. She's like, (laughs) she's just breaking it down. She is such a hilarious character. Every time she is on the screen, she is hilarious. And apparently she's never had any acting experience before. So she's just a natural at being hilarious. And I love it. I would watch all the scenes with her. I mean, the rest of the characters are great, but she's really like the standout to me. Um, then, um, I went to pride, which meant I went outside with people. I met up with actual humans out in the world. It was amazing. You can tell New York has been sitting inside waiting to turn a look for a year because the outfits were epic. I mean, pride is always about the outfits, but people really came and there was so much dude, bare dude ass. (laughs) <laughs> butt steak. Oh, so much butt steak. Like just one dude was just kind of ca- casual. Maybe he'd come from work, but he was like, let me get him to the pride and just kind of pulled his pants below his butt cheeks. Good. So he was good. just like wearing a regular outfit, but his whole ass was hanging out. And then there were these two bears that were in like nothing but leather strap things, getting ice cream, just living their Aww. best life. And like their full, like tiny little strapped up leather things looking amazing. It was a visual treat for the eyes. It was a great day, but it was hot as fuck, so that sucked. Right. Um, and then also a little pride, um, being that uh, it's, well, Cara Davenin, yay? How do you say her last name? <laughs> Cara Delevingne. Uh, Cara Delevingne. Uh, she <laughs> was in Architectural Digest and showing her house, and she has a vagina t- tunnel in her house. What's a vagina tunnel? It is, it looks like a vagina. 
and you enter it, it has like a little beads hanging for like little pearls and like some pink feathers around it. And then she goes, let's see where this lovely labia leads. And it goes through and the other end of the tunnel comes out of a clothing dryer, like a little pink clothing dryer. Wait, it comes, you crawl through, through a clothing, you have to crawl through a clothing dryer? Yeah. It's crazy. I've actually been to a pop-up where you went down through a clothing dryer to a slide to get to somewhere else. <laughs> but, um, so this is in her house and she's so you have to get birthed into the next room. Right. And I feel like I've had so many prop vagina tunnels in my career of music and crazy shit, but I've never mm-hmm. had a permanent vagina tunnel installation in my house. And now I need to see it. I saw it on John Oliver. It was great. Wow. And now I want one. And what have you been watching? Well, thank you so much for asking. I just returned from a week in Virginia visiting my parents who have all of the channels, um, including Peacock Premium. So I went over there to watch Girls 5 Eva because it was behind a paywall. And I got like three and a half episodes in. So I got to the part that your boss and mine, Debbie Stoller, really wanted me to see, which was the main character, Sarah Bareilles's little kid having a dance party to the theme song to the New York times podcast, the daily. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'll always want to like shake my little butt when I hear that theme song from now on. Cause it was so cute when that kid did it. Um, I just really love seeing Sarah Bareilles and busy Phillips and Paula Pell and Renee Elise Goldsberry hanging out together. Yeah, I saw the first three episodes because those are actually free on. on. Well, I wasn't going to start in the middle. I just, I wanted to start from the beginning, but then I just ran out of time. Right. So I've seen the first three, and I really, really like it. I would love, uh, what's her name, Busy Phillips, so much. Yeah. And Paula Pell has been so hilarious writing for Saturday Night Live for so long, and I'm very glad that she's in front of the camera where she belongs because she's, she, she's just been hiding out behind the camera for too long. And so I was watching that and then I came back and my beloved heavy metal neighbors who are no longer my neighbors, but I still call them that because I met them whilst they were my next door neighbors. They moved to Greenpoint and for many years they've been having these hilarious periodic parties called Bad Movie Night where people have to suggest the worst, best, worst movies they can find. And then we all get together and eat popcorn and watch them and it's fun. And the first thing that we watched was a TV show. I think it was like a straight-to-VHS TV show that was made from 1986 to 1995 called Fire by Night. Yeah. Fire by Night was a Christian variety show. Oh, Lord. That was, uh, that was hosted by this guy named Blaine Bartell, who was like a hip and happening youth minister with like a popped collar and like brightly colored sweatshirts with the, with the, uh, you know, sleeves rolled up in a, in a cool 1986 way. And you could tell that it was kind of like, maybe they thought like, how can we make like a cool Saturday night live for teens? That's a variety show, but that's cool. And we can, you know, like talk about how being Christian is the best and how it's totally radical to the max. Um, But the show was very, very deeply obsessed, like not so much with Christianity as it was with satanic panic. Oh, Lord. Like everything about the show 
was was like warning kids about how like all the other kids in their school were going to try to get them to be Satanists and how they needed to just say no. And they were be saying things like, did you know that 42% of teens are in the occult? And it's like, well, uh, okay. <laughs> um, you know, like, they were definitely just pulling statistics out of their asses and trying to be, but they, you know, it was a variety show. So there was like a band like with like, you know, hot saxophone, like, you know, playing, you know, there was, there was like a late night band and there was, um, all these things, like they would do like a comedy sketch where a a puppet that was a demon from hell was on the couch. (laughs) And he was like interviewing the demon from hell about what hell is like. And the demon was like really stupid. And all the Christian kids were like laughing at how stupid the hell demon was. But then they would be like, and now we're going to watch today's film, it happened one night and then they would have like a video segment where the police would be putting tape around a house and people would be like, what happened to Jimmy's house? And they're like, I don't know. Both of his parents are dead. And everyone's like, Oh my God, Jimmy's parents are dead. And, and then like, he would find out that Jimmy killed his parents because kids in his school convinced him to be a Satanist. So he murdered his parents. I mean, but then they would go, but then they would go back to like a wacky musical number. It was so weird. My God, that sounds nuts. It's called fire by night. You can find it on YouTube. And then the other show that we watched is a film from 1980 called the apple that we watched on Amazon. And it was a, a science fiction musical comedy that was set in a futuristic 1994. So like they made it in 80 about, 1994 and how weird and futuristic everybody would be and like the futuristic style was for everybody to wear a shiny sticker of a triangle on their face <laughs> like that's how you knew it was the future that was it but they shot it in berlin in 1979 and so it looked it could not have looked more like it's from the past like even if they had shot it in like any other big city in 1980 it would have looked more futuristic than in berlin in 1979 so they were like look at us we're in the future but they were really just like pretending it was the future by shooting it in an empty airport Oh my because <laughs> that's like what future architecture would look like but it was just an empty airport um and so there were but there were some big impressive musical numbers there was a lot of gold lame you know it was about like these very earnest like singer songwriters who were in something that was kind of like eurovision like a song contest but then the vampiric music industry swooped in to to corrupt them and tear them apart <laughs> so it ended up being a being a good counterpoint to fire by night because apparently just there's just never-ending evil surrounding you at all times trying to corrupt you. <laughs> um, but there were there was amazing costumes, big razzly-dazzly musical numbers, and, you know, it was a bad movie that was fun to watch, and those are my favorite. I love them. Movies. I love a bad movie that's fun. And people have considered it one of the worst films ever made. So, you know, if you like bad movies, you should watch it. And the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page, which is in the world, and I hope that you will check it out. We really need your help to keep Bust alive, and hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that Callie and I have hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively 
for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all 112 episodes. We've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there, including our amazing episode with Big Frida and much more. Please check out what we've got at patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you want to become one of our sponsors, you can sponsor us for as little as $1 a month, um, all the way up to Big Spender $25 a month. And there's goodies at every sponsorship level. So please take a look. And finally, thank you to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. We caliente, Logan. And, of course, to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at RemsEmily, but you cannot find Callie on socials, so don't even try, right? No. You can, however, email us both. I'm at EmilyRems at Bust.com. CallieW at Bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super-duper appreciate it. Until next time, Mm -hmm. actual humans out in the world. Girl. Put on the combat boots. Put on the combat boots. Put on the combat boots. I'm a real horny person myself. I'm a real horny person myself. Turn this AC on, girl.